Brothers and sisters, let us read our text once more as we find it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, and following and through to chapter 4, verse 1. These words, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So far, the reading of our text. After the proclamation of God's word, let us respond by singing from hymn 71, all the stanzas of hymn 71 following the sermon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you've ever felt a sense of patriotism when singing the Canadian national anthem, or if you've had a sense of pride belonging to this country and felt a willingness perhaps to volunteer to fight to defend this country, if need be, then you know something of what it means to be a citizen. These are attitudes and actions of a citizen, attitudes and actions that a visitor or a tourist will not share. These things show, they serve to show that your citizenship means something to you, gives you a sense of identity and history, and may even prompt you in a, in a willingness to sacrifice, perhaps to, to give up what you're entitled to for the sake of the common good. And so taking all of these thoughts about citizenship, it's important to relate it all to our Christian citizenship, our heavenly citizenship. And that can be brought out by asking these questions of yourself. Are heaven's values your values? Are heaven's interests your interests? Those are the kinds of questions that our text leads us to consider this morning. And Paul's point in these verses to state it in clear terms at, at the outset of our sermon is that our heavenly citizenship will profoundly affect our earthly conduct. The things we feel, the ways we act, the things we desire are all impacted by this truth. And so I preach the word of God to you this morning under this theme, our citizenship is in heaven We'll consider what it means to know your citizenship, and secondly, to live your citizenship. First, what does it mean to know our citizenship? In verse 20 of our text, Paul declares that our citizenship is in heaven. Paul is not speaking here in some highfalutin terms about something that has no practical earthly value. For Paul is saying that for Paul, this is not some pie in the sky statement, not pie in the sky theology. Paul is saying that to live well, we have to understand who we are. 
believers need to understand their citizenship. For it's not enough to be told of things that we are to do. For if we do not understand the call of, for what to do in connection with who we are, then we won't respond to that call. Now, citizenship means having the rights and the privileges and the duties of a citizen. It means that we belong to something larger than a collection of mere individuals. And Paul wants us to understand that our citizenship is in heaven. And to understand what this means, think for a moment of the opposite of being a citizen, which is being a tourist. Tourists feel out of place, like fish out of water. They sometimes stick out quite radically and noticeably, perhaps by the way they dress, perhaps by the way they speak. Also, a, a tourist, as a tourist, you might have a, a minimal knowledge of a place and its history and its land and its customs. Not so a citizen. No, they are, they're familiar with the language, with the laws, oftentimes. And they have a sense of belonging, a sense of, of protection that all come with their knowledge of being a citizen. Now, if anyone understood what it meant to have a citizenship located elsewhere, it was Paul and the Philippians. Paul was a Roman citizen, and he used that fact to ensure that he received a fair trial, we know from the book of Acts. And as a good commentary also points out, Philippi, though it was located in Greece, yet it was a Roman colony. And so the Philippians, too, were Roman citizens. The Philippians were well aware that their citizenship lay elsewhere than in Philippi. And likewise, believers live in this world as citizens of the world to come. And that's why the scriptures speak sometimes of the kingdom of this world and elsewhere of the kingdom of heaven, which while distinct from each other, nevertheless, both exist under God's rule and authority. So what Paul is saying is that we find ourselves living in a certain kingdom in this world, yet being citizens of another kingdom, of another world. The kingdom of this world in which we dwell is a, is a rebellious domain, resisting God's reign and authority, while the kingdom of heaven is a domain that is loyal to God, submissive and obedient to God's reign and authority, and that is our true home. And because of Christ's ascension into heaven and because of the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost, God has, has united us to Christ so that we are also seated with him on high in heaven. 
Our identity and our loyalty and our sense of purpose are all bound up in Christ. Because we live in him and he in us. And because he lives in heaven and on earth through his spirit, we also live in heaven and on earth. Paul is saying that that's the reality we live in. And this also then creates a unique bond between fellow believers. For just as if you had traveled abroad, you met up with some other citizens of your country, you develop a special bond with them that you might never have developed otherwise because you have a common bond together which you might not, where you might not have otherwise expected it. And so it is with believers. They have a special connection to each other as they navigate this world together. Our minds and our hearts are fixed on Christ. And this is in, in marked contrast to the citizens of this world and what they set their minds upon. For as Paul has just explained in, in the verses preceding our text, in verses 18 and 19, Philippians 3, they, they set their minds on earthly things and have no desire to set their minds on the things of heaven. They, they're stuck, as it were, down here. And this brings Paul to the point of tears. He says in verse 18, he sees people hustling and bustling about, careless about their lives, ignorant of eternity, unconcerned about God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, enemies of the cross. He doesn't point his finger at them and, and mock them, but he falls on his knees and he, and he cries for them. He weeps for them. Why? Because he longs for those who were enemies of Christ to become friends. But while there's much that we have in, in common, while we have much in common with, with unbelievers in this world, like we share many similar responsibilities, which include our civil and social and family responsibilities, yet our minds and our hearts are are longing for and, and captivated by heaven. And because we long for heaven, we are out of place in this world. Now that's not to say that we are to be disattached from this world, for we are interested to work, we are interested to pray for this world, to work in this world, that God would make this world more like heaven as we long for the day when God will join heaven and earth in the new heaven and the new earth. As one theologian put it very well, he said, genuine spirituality will not exist or live long without an attitude that is homesick for heaven. To be homesick for heaven is to have eternity's values in view and, and to be eagerly waiting for Christ's return. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven already now. 
And now it's interesting that, that the Bible is, is quite reserved in its description and in its treatment of heaven. It is, it is quite discreet. It uses a lot of symbolic language. Take the book of Revelation, for example, which it uses to describe that which can be very difficult to understand and difficult to apply in describing heaven. The reason for that is probably because we cannot really explain it, cannot really wrap our minds around it. For if we could, would it still be heaven? How could we possibly begin to understand it? Even the greatest of language cannot possibly do justice to explaining it. It's kind of like, how could you explain to a tadpole what it is like to, to jump around like a frog? Or how can you explain to a caterpillar what it is like to fly like a, a butterfly? Well, our, our Christian hope is similarly hard to grasp, and yet it is no less real. And so I ask you, if heaven is what you are most hoping for, is heaven your greatest expectation, your greatest treasure? You'll know your treasure by what takes up the most of your time, the most of your money, the most of your thinking. For as Christ said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. So how do we show that we are citizens of heaven and that heaven is our treasure? Well, that brings us to our second point, considering what it means to live our citizenship. Well, Paul describes what living your citizenship looks like in part in the second part of verse 20 and, and going into verse 1 of chapter 4. And he says three things about what this means. Of course, our heavenly citizenship is not limited to three things, the three things that Paul links here with this reality, but, but that's what Paul's doing, linking just three things with our citizenship in heaven. First of all, he says in verse 20 that heavenly citizens await their Savior. They are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, anticipating it, desiring it, hoping for it, because it means the experience of full salvation from sin and from its effects. And now notice here how Paul identifies Jesus as Savior. We, we await a Savior. Contrary to what you might have imagined, this term, Savior, is not a common word that Paul uses to describe Christ. And so the fact that Paul is using this term here is very significant. He's not speaking about what we are already saved from, but what we will be saved from, what we are not yet already saved from. Well, you see that though God has, has forgiven our sin, he has freed us from 
from everlasting punishment of sin, yet we still sin. And sin separates us from a, a sense of God's love, and it, and it isolates us from one another in the communion of saints. And so as believers, we long for full salvation, not only sin's penalty gone, not only sin's power gone, but also sin's presence gone, so that we may see Jesus face to face. We want to know him as he knows us. We want to experience not just a, a fleeting sense of the love of God, but the consistent a consistent sense of the love of God that is like the, the waters of, of the Niagara River rolling over the embankment, mega gallon by mega gallon, falling into the basin below the falls. That's love to long for. That's the love we expect and hope for. But sometimes this longing is tiring and exhausting to wait for. It can get us agitated. It can wear us down. Yet our yearning for Christ's return is the exercise of faith. We have a desire for him to complete the work that he has begun in us. And that desire leads us to consciously and actively practice the discipline of waiting and watching for Christ's return, thinking about his return, praying for his return, and talking with others about his return. And secondly, heavenly citizens yearn for new bodies. Verse 21 is saying that as believers, we eagerly await the return of Christ because one thing that will happen then is that he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. It's interesting how Paul does that, ties our heavenly citizenship to one of the most earthly things that we know, our physical bodies. When God created us, he breathed the, the breath of life into us, making us alive. He, and so man was a truly living being. But when we sinned in Adam, then death crept in to this creation, into this world, and it infiltrated our own bodies. And since then, we are all dying. We're all subject to death. And we experience that reality in our bodies. They grow cumbersome. They break down. They don't do what you want them to do. You don't look the way that, that we, we, we want them to look. We're, we're gradually inching towards our bodies turning back into dust. And the older that we get, the more we feel that and the more we sense that. Some more than others. Sin is, is so radically destructive that, that even the healthiest of bodies 
cannot survive more than 125 years in this, even in this modern age, with, with all kinds of medical marvels and, and advancements. No matter what we do to prevent it or to, to slow it down, death is inevitable. We, we age, and with age, we, we find ourselves not only declining physically, but also sometimes mentally, and we might even regress to having the, the wits of a child at the very end of our lives. Well, that's what's behind Paul's words, what he says about our lowly body. And that reality should train us to look toward the return of Christ and to anticipate the gift of new bodies because sin has, has so powerfully degenerated us. We cannot successfully resist that degenerative power in any way of our own. But, says Paul, if our citizenship is in heaven and our hearts and our minds are already with God in heaven, then we can count on Jesus Christ returning to regenerate our bodies. And that's why the apostle speaks of the power of Christ. Because we know, we're familiar with the power of sin. We feel it in our bodies. We perhaps also feel it in our minds. And so when Paul speaks of receiving new bodies, transformed bodies, which restore, which was lost, that was lost in the fall, he speaks of Christ's power, Christ's ability to subject all things to himself, leaving nothing out. Christ, through the power of his resurrection, he proved that he is more powerful than the sin that has corrupted us. So we have this hope that at the time of Christ's return, the Lord will give us bodies that are like the body of Jesus, like his glorious body, says our text. Now that doesn't mean that we will possess superpowers such as Christ had following his resurrection where he could walk through walls or lock doors Having, a, having an invincibility of sorts, but, but having a glorious body does mean that we will be like, like Jesus in the sense that we will be able to practice the will of God. We will be able to obey the will of God. The promise of new bodies is, is therefore invigorating for us while we live in these broken bodies as we wait for the hope of the coming of Christ. And thirdly, Paul gives the application that citizens of heaven stand firm in the Lord. Oh, that's Philippians. Philippians 1 is tied in with the previous verses, as you can see, with the word, therefore. In that way, Paul is linking this verse with what he has just said about citizenship and of the return of Christ. And he's giving a third application here. And Philippians 4 verse 1 is, is really a masterfully written sentence. And too often it's ignored because at a quick glance we're, 
we're unsure whether it belongs with chapter 3 or whether it goes better with chapter 4, according to how our Bibles have divided the text. But in this sentence, Paul is calling us to essentially stand firm in the Lord. This command sounds like the words of a military officer. Stand firm. Don't be moved. Hold your line. And we need to hear those words. These words speak of the need to persevere, even in trial, not to fall into the the pit of complacency. It's so easy for us not to hold firm, to grow slack, to grow lazy and comfortable and relax our stance. But But the spirit of Pentecost would rally us to to keep progressing toward the goal of glory. Now let's pause here for a minute to consider what does standing firm mean in your life. We all ought to ask ourselves if there are areas in our lives where we have not been standing firm, where we've let go of the reality of of living in light of heaven. God's word says, do not let your challenges distract you from looking to Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus Christ. By, By being allured with this world, being consumed with it, to to look only to earthly comfort or to cultural definitions of success, no Stand firm, not in your own accomplishments. Stand firm in the Lord. But notice how that command to stand firm in the Lord is is couched. It's surrounded by the language of love. My brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Well, it doesn't sound so much like an army commander anymore, does it? While it's true that Christ is our commanding officer who has that kind of authority, yet he doesn't speak to us with the same kind of tone. He speaks words of love surrounding this command. It's the words of a lover to his beloved. And Paul is speaking these words as an ambassador of Christ, as if Christ is speaking through him to the Philippians and to us. And so through these words, what we really hear is the voice of Christ, his love, his joy for you, his longing to come and to dry your tears and to calm your fears. He's saying to you just as much as Paul did to the Philippians You are my crown and my joy. You are the trophies of my grace. And that is the power of citizenship. This is what citizenship is all about. It is belonging to something in such a way that that something, in this case the the kingdom of of our returning Lord Jesus Christ, utterly defines you and comforts you 
and inspires you so that you can respond to this call to stand firm in this unstable world. And so as we come to a close this morning, God is saying to us today that if we belong to Christ, our citizenship is in heaven and therefore the application is simply this, eagerly wait for Christ, anticipate the gift of new bodies and stand firm in the Lord. May this be the hope of each one of us, the greatest source of joy and comfort that we know and have in this world, that we belong to another world, a better and lasting world, which is our true home. Amen.